Welcome to The Mocking Cast, the podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. I'm Sarah Condon, your host. In just a few moments, I'll be joined by my co-host, RJ Heyman and David Zoll. We come to you every other Friday to explore a few of the places where we currently see grace playing out in unexpected and compelling ways. Glad to have you with us. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Well, good morning, you two. Uh, I'm very excited to be talking to both of you. Although one of you looks a little different than usual. I'm. Uh, I got a tan. You got <laughs> A serious, serious tan. I mean, I, I thought you'd go over to uh, Holland and you'd get whiter somehow, but instead you turned uh, Latino. So, yeah, I'm the half Mexican RJ. <laughs> Welcome to Aaron Zimmerman, who's filling in today for RJ Heyman, who is actually in his motherland. But I'm secretly delighted that we get to have Aaron as our fill in. Aaron, where are you calling from? I'm in Waco, Texas at St. Albans Episcopal Church in our new offices. So I'm surrounded by partially constructed Ikea furniture and lots of boxes full of books that need to find a home. Are these the books that you actually read or the books you said you read? They're prop books. It's like, you know, when you go to Ikea and it shows a fake office with a computer that's actually just a plastic shell. Uh, They're sort of like that. It's just a front. And behind each one, you open them up and it's different candies. There's like Swedish fish. (laughs) Like behind the synoptic gospels, you pull back the covers and it's just M&Ms back there. The children's ministry is thriving. (laughs) that's right that's right are you keeping some of the old furniture because the thing i'm fascinated by with churches and like where like interior design is right now like when i see all this mid-century modern like oh it's mid-century modern chairs mid-century modern couch i'm like isn't that just church furniture (laughs) (laughs) it was uncomfortable then and it still is and we've still got it 40 years later folks yeah yeah no i have mid 90s uh i have clinton era furniture and it's uh it's not great, and it doesn't match the paint in my new office, but it'll be fine. Yes. Sari, where are you calling in from? Because this does not look like your usual spot. It is not. I am surrounded by wood paneling um, in a rental house in Sewanee, Tennessee. So we come oh, here. Yeah. We've come here for the past three years. My husband's getting a doctorate of ministry. We will not be calling him Doctor Condon afterwards. <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it's this is our last year, and it's been great. And I'm really glad that we're not coming back next summer. Also, so oh, really, I would suggest Nashville if you're visiting Suwannee. Sorry, Go to Nashville. Go to Nashville <laughs> Grand Ole Opry. Well, um, a lot going on this week, a lot to discuss, and I thought we'd jump in. I mean, I've got to ask you guys, when you think of Chris Pratt, what's your go-to version of Chris Pratt, or does he register at all for you? Parks and Rec is like... Yeah, totally. I mean, like that, yeah, that's like... Because I don't get... He's done some more like dude kind of stuff that's like not really my vibe, but he's amazing in Parks and Rec. Sugar Slam! Uh, <laughs> do you guys, remember that do is my favorite thing that just makes me laugh thinking about it. the slightly pudgier version the andy right. dwyer yeah, what yeah, about yeah. you uh aaron yeah no andy dwyer for me all the way i mean i love him in uh, all the guardians of the galaxy stuff i mean he brings some of that sensibility to it but i guess seeing him 
sort of cut in good looking gives me hope as the bearer of a finely tuned dad bod uh, that he went from <laughs> what he was to what he is. But yeah, the, there was so much joy and playfulness and silliness in Eddie Dwyer. He was originally cast, I think, for just a six episode arc, but he was so great. He became really? a regular on the show. Yeah. And get this. Do you know he was living in a van in Maui working at Bubba Gump Shrimp Company as a waiter? And some big Hollywood person came in and he was waiting on her and charmed her and basically a cast in her movie. He moved to LA and that was the beginning of the whole thing, but he was homeless wow. in Hawaii working as a waiter mm. and just on sheer charm and chutzpah broke into the business. Rags to riches, an American mm. Rags, story. That's, that's, that's right. You too, Dave. Yeah. Well, I mean, I see that, that, that famous picture of him, you know, where he's like, one picture is him with a sort of pudgy dad bod and then side by side, it's like, you know, he was at Marine in that movie and he'd gotten so ridiculously cut. And I mean, I find that not to be hope inspiring uh, or a hopeful <laughs> picture. I, I find that to be extremely con- condemning Aaron. So it's funny how we look at the <laughs> same thing very differently. But uh, this week, the reason we're talking about Chris Pratt is this week, you know, at the MTV movie music, I don't know what they're called now, Generation Awards. When did they change the name of the thing? Yeah, that's that's how out of touch I am. Because we're so old. We're all like, what happened? (laughs) Do you remember what it was like in 1998? Is there still a spaceman? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so he gets up there. He receives his big sort of, you know, Lifetime Achievement Award or Generation Award, it's called. And he gets up there and gives this talk that starts out funny. And he he goes into sort of nine rules from Chris Pratt, Generation Award winner. And... um, I watched the video and I thought, oh, another viral thing. I'm sure maybe he thanks God at one point. Then uh, then you have him here kind of basically laying out the gospel. And I mean, Sarah, what was your response to watching this video? Well, to be honest with you, there's one that he said sort of towards the middle about like God loves you and wants you to have a, a good life. Or There was something and I was like, oh, no, where is this headed? I really was like, because I feel like so much of celebrity culture, if it is Christian, a lot of it is got some prosperity gospel stuff. Mm-hmm. So at that point, I was like, where is this headed? Do I want to turn this off? And then at the end, it's so like cruciform. I mean, he's just like so clearly talking about people's sins having been forgiven through the death of Jesus Christ on a cross. I thought it was fantastic, (laughs) but yeah, it was wonderful. I I mean, to say at the end, again, talking about a guy who went from the Andy Dwyer lookalike to having a six pack to just to say, nobody's perfect. People are going to tell you you're perfect just the way you are, but you're not, you're imperfect. And that, that that was, uh, I think wonderful and a needed tonic today. It got so explicitly atonement-based at the end. I mean, it talked about the blood of Jesus. I was like, well, I don't know the last time this happened on, on MTV. Maybe the closest thing would be when they were still showing music videos and they showed Madonna's Like Prayer. I was like, it's Madonna's like, music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> that was, and also lots of crucifixes. Shout out to Axl Rose, uh, <laughs> November Rain, Dave, this is for you. Thank you. Friend of the but, show. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. But I, the thing that I also loved about, and this is why Chris Pratt is great, is how ridiculous, and again, how silly and funny he was. And, you know, I'm always one that's interested in how people communicate. And I mm-hmm. think preachers could learn a lot from him. And this gets at some of the stuff I was trying to say, for better or worse, in my article in the Mockingbird magazine for the last humor issue. Uh, shameless plug here. But just he, he alternates between really serious 
and really funny. Sometimes you think he's going serious and he goes funny, like breathe is how he opens. And you think it's going to be this statement on, I don't know, taking a moment to be mindful. And he's just like, breathe. If you don't, you'll suffocate. And then, but to say a serious point in a funny way, like, you know, he says, don't be a turd, uh, which it's a laugh. That word is always funny. A lot of scatological stuff here, uh, the, you know, how to poop at a party. Uh, <laughs> but he mixes in the serious and the funny. I don't know if you can talk scatologically from the pulpit, but I think there's stuff here that, that a preacher can learn. And because people laugh, their defenses are down and they're open here. When he drives home the point, number nine, nobody's perfect. You're not. And Jesus shed his blood for you. It's like, boom. Yeah, it was amazing. And apparently his faith really came into view after his son was born premature. That, and that's who this is all talking to, his uh, son, yeah, yeah. Uh, who, was, who was, you know, just really touch and go there. Uh, and he begins by saying, like, this is because Jack is going to listen to this someday. So, yeah, it, it was. Yeah, it was, actually, I thought immediately of you, Aaron, I thought of your article and humor and the use of humor, but also it can't be too contrived and the way that he misdirected people. And he's first of all begins with you have a soul. Then he goes into, you know, silly stuff. And then he says that incredible thing that actually may be the most serious thing he said outside of the final point. When he said, when giving a dog medicine, put the medicine in a little piece of hamburger, (laughs) they won't even know they're eating medicine. And then he kind of does that in the final. Someone commented on on Facebook that, you know, he goes into it and then all of a sudden he's like saying, this whole thing about pooping at a party, which he's basically <laughs> gussying us up to the really heavy stuff. Yeah. He says, learn to pray. It's easy and it's so good for your soul. Mm-hmm. And then to go into yeah. the grace piece, I thought to myself, like we posted it on Mockingbird and I said, you know, he's soon to be appointed youth minister general of the United States because it has that classic yeah. young life youth minister. Hey, let's make a, let's make a fart joke. And then let's talk about sin but doing it in this winsome way in which it's sort of, it, it was true to his personality. I also thought, what, how do we evangelize? Like, what, what does it mean to evangelize? Does it mean to sit people down and go over God's plan with, for them in, on a napkin? Or does it have to do, is it sort of humor? Is it uncontrived? Is it something that can't really even be prescribed? But this question of evangelism, that's one thing I wanted y'all, your thoughts on. Sarah, what are more of your reactions to all of this? Well, having just attended a lecture on homiletics recently, um, <laughs> in which the one with the lecturer suggested that we just needed to tell people that the resurrection was real and they just needed to believe it because science has now ruined everything. And it made me think, well, and it might have made me raise my hand and say out loud, you know, people actually need to hear about the unique brokenness in themselves and the way that Jesus heals that. And perhaps people need to hear more about the crucifixion, less about the resurrection in some circles, because you can't get one without the other. Mm. And I mean, I think he actually did a pretty beautiful job of that, of telling people about the crucifixion, of pulling them into it and not in an aggressive way. And, you know, I'm also thinking about that. I don't know if you guys started watching the second season of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy or whatever it's called now. But Josh and I watched the first episode the other night, which is like you literally are taken to church. Like they help work on this church and, you know, sort of deal with all of the issues that small Southern churches deal with when it comes to how they interact with gay people. So in the episode, there is sort of this classic old school church lady and she's talking to one of the Fab Five and she says, you can't 
evangelize and antagonize. And it's such a brilliant point and it rhymes, which I love. But this idea that, you know, you can't come at people aggressively. You can't just tell people that the resurrection happened and they have to believe it, right? People have to have a personal experience of it. I mean, I, I, you know, I know there's a whole argument against that. and, And certainly in my own denomination, things can become so intellectualized, but I had to have a personal experience of it. I mean, that was the only way I'm sitting here. It was funny, you know, you watch that video and you see Bryce Dallas Howard, like nodding her head encouragingly. And you see Aubrey Plaza, like staring him down with daggers. And I don't, maybe they've got baggage from Parks and Rec. Who knows? They were married, weren't they (laughs) on that show? But you get, there was all this like cheering when he started talking about God. And I, I was just wondering how people would receive that. Would they tune out the second he talks about God or because he's Chris Pratt, would they listen? I don't know, but I, I thought that it wasn't antagonistic, Sarah. I, that, that was what was so nice about it. Yeah. And it, it wasn't like you people are being evil or this is like an, all an artifice or, so, or sort of kind of moralizing them. He was right. really proclaiming some kind of hope in the midst of like the fact that life is tough, that nobody's perfect, that you're, you have a soul and that it's kind of at risk. And I don't also don't want to be one of these people that's like, Ooh, a celebrity said it. So like now let's get really excited about celebrity culture because most celebrity culture, in fact, as we go into the next item here, Sarah, right after we recorded the last podcast in which we talked about Kate Spade, we woke up and Anthony Bourdain had killed himself. The great chef and sort of, CNN travel guru, incredibly cool, world traversing Anthony Bourdain. And you wrote a piece that got a lot of traction and response, both positive and negative, where you talked about celebrity culture. And, you know, it, it's, it's one of these things where talking about suicide is, is really tough. We're always faced with the option, do we, do we talk about it and somehow turn the person who's just died into kind of some object lesson immediately? Or do we just not talk about it and stand in confusion and just kind of watch as people continue to not know how to talk about these things? I thought your piece did a wonderful job of surfacing what many of us were thinking without being at all uncompassionate. But I, I'm just thinking about you, you, you really talked about celebrity culture itself and fame. So I'm Where are you now two weeks away from that piece? What are you thinking about it? Yeah, well, I do want to say, I think there is a, there is a big blowback and I got some interesting, colorful emails from people afterwards about, you know, and some of them were about like, not, you know, that we shouldn't be, I shouldn't be writing about this. We shouldn't be talking about this. And I come from a family that is so racked by suicide. And my parents were very honest with me about that, you know, my whole life about why there were certain people that weren't there, that whenever there's suicide for better or worse, I always try to make sense of it. And I, you know, I mean, I, I, it's like a compulsion because it's something I always have thought about. So, I mean, two weeks out, it's funny the Chris Pratt video. So the thing that stayed with me, and I wish I had the sort of the transcript from it was the opening because the way he talks about his family and the way he talks about his fans is completely different. He sa- he says something like about his 
his family like really loving him and um you know and all, all this sort of like love language and then he basically says and you know if it weren't for my fans i wouldn't be here that's you know what i mean like that's there's yeah. no like he doesn't gush over them there's this very clear delineation again i'm not saying anthony bourdain wasn't getting this right but i think that delineation is very healthy when it comes to something like fame that you're saying like okay you know what all of these people think about me is actually not relevant which i think is an impossibly hard thing to do also if you're famous right i don't know i i feel like so much of anthony bourdain's persona i mean there's a reason he was so cool right there's a reason he was so like we all wanted to watch him and i Mm -hmm. but i also think that that was like a a never satiated monster so yeah aaron what where's what are you with with all this it's really hard. I mean, I think looking at somebody like that, what people always say in these situations, and I think there's something to it, is that if you're someone who deals with depression, success can be excruciating mm. because once you've achieved everything that the world says makes the pain go away and the pain is still there, what are you going to do? What other options do you have? And I, the thing that blew me away about the whole thing, part of it was where he was. He was in one of the most breathtakingly beautiful places in the world. I mean, one of those perfect little French villages, eating incredible food every day, having this ideal situation. And I think if you are still being pursued by the black dog when you're there, it seems like he must have felt what other option did he have. And I think, you know, Sarah, you wrote, I thought really powerfully in that article that suicide makes an odd kind of sense. It's a way of saying, I can't hold it all together. I give up completely. That's how it really struck me, just this giving up. Like, I was a chef, I've tried drugs, I tried fame, I tried everything, and I give up. But it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. It also, sort of on a related note, we were talking about men and vulnerability a bit this week, and one of the things that came across my desk yesterday was, you guys know James Blake is, this kind of hip, kind of electronic swungsmith. It's hard to describe his music without saying he writes sad, but very beautiful music in a kind of a Radiohead-like vein. And he had just released a new record and people were talking about it. And he decided to respond to what they were saying. And he said, I can't help but notice, as I do whenever I talk about my feelings in a song, that the words, quote, sad boy are used to describe it. I've always found that expression to be unhealthy and problematic when used to describe men who just openly talking about their feelings. To label it at all, when we don't ever question women discussing things they're struggling with, contributes to the ever-disastrous historical stigmatization of men expressing themselves emotionally. We are already in an epidemic of male depression and suicide. We don't need any further proof that we have hurt men with our questioning of their need to be vulnerable and open. I thought there was something deeply wise about that because we were coming right off of Father's Day And I'd written something for Mockingbird about how it's this cliche almost that Mother's Day is like the most well-attended Sunday of the year and Father's Day looks like the least. And part of that has to do with the fact that one's in June, one's in May. Part of it has to do with the fact that Father's Day is just as recent and it's just not as big a deal. People are much more likely to feel like celebrating their mother than their dad for all sorts of reasons, many of them systemic, some of them just spiritual, some of them psychological. But could it also be? that men, when it's their day to decide what to do, they can do whatever they want to choose willingly to go to church. It's one thing to go and accompany your family, but to go to church willingly and say, this is my priority on Sunday morning is in a sense to admit that you do not have it all together, that you are a person who is in need, not just one who is knee dead. 
And that's kind of anathema to conventional notions of masculinity that James Blake is pushing back on, that maybe Anthony Bourdain was dealing with, though he seemed kind of open about who he was and how sad he was. So the answer to suicide is not just a detoxified masculinity, mm -hmm. but it's more than that. It's hope. It's, it's pairing, as we talked about in The Weekender last week. It's all sorts of different things. It's not one single thing. I think ultimately it's, it's God. But I would love to hear, Sarah, I mean, wh where does that leave you? You've written about this, I know, a number of times before. I don't know. I mean, I, suicide is such, and, and, and mental illness leading to suicide is such an overwhelming thing because, and I feel like I said this last week with Kate Spade, it does feel like a train you can't get people off of. And that is an impossibly awful thing as a family member or as, you know, I mean, we lost our friend Ron to suicide two years ago and talked about it a little bit on this show. Like, you know, I remember my husband saying, like, I should have called him more, you know, we should have done this, we should have done that. And, you know, and then we showed up for his funeral and it was like a whole, a whole church full of people who'd all tried to call Ron more and all who, you know, and it just didn't matter. And it is this notion that we, you know, we have suicide notes in my own family that say this, that people will say, you're, you know, you're better off. You're better off without me. And it's so hard to convince people that that is not true. I guess I'm really grateful for ECT, <laughs> to be honest with you. I've seen that be so helpful in people's lives. I, I worked in a psychiatric hospital and we lived in New York that was just starting to do ECT again in a whole different way. And, you know, talking people, about electroshock therapy. Yeah, which people, people have some really bad feelings about. And I get that. My own grandfather, before he took his life, did years of electroshock therapy in the 40s, which, you know, I can only imagine how awful that was. It ultimately didn't work for him, but it is working more now in people's lives. And I find that very hopeful. So, you know, I, I do think the ultimate answer is God. God. And yet I struggle with hearing that said out loud because, you know, I can remember, especially growing up in the Bible Belt, when someone would kill themselves, there was always this immediate, you know, like, well, they just didn't know Jesus. Now they're going to hell. And like, so I... Mm -hmm spiritualizing suicide sometimes makes me anxious. I think as far as I can go, and it's what I've written before, is that I think God takes these people who feel unloved and tucks them so closely into his heart that they could never deny his love of them. It's just such a heavy, heavy thing. Yeah. Gosh, Aaron, as as a as a man, does any of this James Blake uh, fatherhood stuff resonate? As someone who's looking out in the pews on a on yeah, no, I have Day? no feelings, Dave. I mean, I, as, a, as a man, the first rule well, of masculinity is do not yeah. talk about masculinity. <laughs> yeah, you know, I think about that. You know, that huge cop that's voiced by Mr. T in Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, the movie mm -hmm. version. Which, by the way, I have to say, Dave and John Zoll gave that book to my children a million years ago, and they they still love it to this day and remember you guys as the as the guys Aww. that gave them the book. But uh, Flint Lockwood, the cop, mm -hmm. um, has an emotional moment and he starts to cry, and a tear begins to roll down his face, and he says, "Dear, get back in there!" And like his eye sort of sucks the tear back up into the tear duct, and I thought, "Wow, what a it's it's funny, but also." And it's, it was in sort of a silly movie, but I was like, wow, that is what so many people think it is to be a man. I help lead a men's Bible study here on Thursday mornings, and at the end we do prayer requests. And about 99% of the time, it is people talking about other people in their lives who are sick or, you know, a lot of cancer or surgery coming up or whatever. And I can't, there may have been a time, but I can't really remember people saying something like, 
my wife and I are really struggling mm. right now, or I'm depressed, or I'm dealing with my identity after a job loss, you know, kind of that real stuff of life. And I've been in men's Bible studies or support groups where that kind of stuff is discussed. But I will say it's not the norm. And you have to really work to get people there because there's so much fear. I think men are really taught. I think, it, and it's not necessarily just men. I think it, it may, there may be different emphases or kind of flavors um, based on gender stereotypes. Women have their version of this as well. But Certainly men are told to be in command, you know, never, never let them see you sweat, never let them think you don't know what you're talking about, never let them think you're not an expert on the subject. So, yeah, I mean, I think all of this kind of goes together. Um, it, I'm, I'm thinking back to a, one of those Anthony Bourdain episodes in Boston where he went down to some sort of kind of blue collar area, got wasted on air. And I was like, wow, this is, yeah, you don't usually see this. Um, on CNN of all places. And then the next clip was him having like hangover food in some diner in Boston. And just clearly a man in pain who, you know, people said we knew he was in pain. I don't ever remember him talking about it on air. I mean, maybe y'all do, but, mm. but I do think, yeah, there's, there's clearly a thing here where people aren't allowed to talk about things. It, just another little statistic to kind of add to this conversation about suicide. There was a recent study that came out about the impact of what are called red flag laws. So this is related to the gun control debate. There were two states that implemented legislation where if somebody has some sort of what they call a red flag, like uh, mental illness or some sort of arrest for some I don't know, domestic abuse or whatever, they take your guns away. And they did a study of Connecticut, I think, and Indiana, two states that passed this red flag law. And what they found is that basic gun crimes didn't, weren't really affected that much, but what they saw a huge drop in was suicide. That's fascinating. Uh, because yeah. other than hunting, that's what most people use guns for. I, I think, you know, Sarah said to say it's about God sounds over-spiritualizing. And I think that is because a lot of times I think what people mean by that is like, you're supposed to just have some magical divine Monty Python cartoon grandpa God snap his fingers and fix your brain. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's what it is. I think it's God incarnated in community. And I've been in pastoral situations where the things that save people from suicide, sometimes it was getting the message that God loved them and wasn't out to get them. Because if you are a person who has depression and anxiety, to feel like God is getting ready to smite you, which a lot of people really feel like, is hugely anxiety producing. So I think that's part of it. But I think the other big part of it is feeling like you're in a community of people who love you. And I've seen small groups or just kind of the people around you in church, if you have your little network of support, when they know that you're in trouble, go and sit with people or take them a meal or whatever, really be the thing that, you know, while they're waiting for the meds to kick in or whatever, really has saved people's people's lives so i think yeah. when people say they need god it's not just a new idea about god it, as sarah said you need to have a personal experience and usually that's mediated through a community of people yeah. who love you and that's what i meant when i said god is the answer meaning god needs to show up it's not sure. like yeah it's not like we need to understand god better i will say this i think that charlotte donran wrote a really good article yesterday about suicide and sort of how it brings up our own darker emotions and it gets us in touch with our maybe thoughts we've had about ourselves or people that we've lost. And I think it's a really good sort of addition to this discussion. I think also, you know, I try not to do this very often, but in our mental health issue, which came out like a couple years ago, I personally spent a lot of time and energy trying to talk about the epidemic and really voice all of the hesitations and all of the dangers of talking about it, while also mentioning some of the social things that you cannot deny are going on here, the community aspect 
the theological aspect. And I read it again the other day. I was like, do I still feel this way after basically everything that's going on? And I, I still think it's a helpful article. So seek it out. Maybe we should make it available for free. While we're on heavy, heavy subjects, we uh, this has been a week-long period where all that's been in the news has been children in cages and being separated from their parents. And I know that it's a complicated scenario. It's very easy for me in Virginia to have an opinion about border security when it's not affecting me, or at least I, I can I can look at the images. But you guys are in Texas and you know you have to be pretty callous not to have been affected by these recordings that we've been met with and the, the agony going on with the immigrants there. Right before we were about to record this, President Trump signed a reversal where it's no longer a kid's going to be separated. And given our news cycle today, the cynic in me says, will anyone even remember what we're talking about in two weeks? But I did think that the best thing I've read on the subject is Barbara McClay on Common Wheel wrote something called Tearful Among Women. And she talks about the Pieta, you know, the image of that most famously captured by Michelangelo of Mary holding Jesus after his crucifixion in her arms, but sort of not clutching him, but sort of openly he's on her lap. And there's this look of sadness and love. And this is what she writes. She says, Mary holding the dead and tortured body of her son seemed right somehow for this quote, political moment, an image that contains mourning, desolation, comfort, and reproach. In his lecture on the Pieta, Richard Harries points out that one of the earliest extant depictions of this scene is the Rotgen Pieta, which comes from 14th century Germany, when many mothers, if they were brave enough, would have been holding the dying bodies of their children succumbing to the Black Plague. This early Pieta is contorted in grief. Mary's mouth is open, Christ's body shrunken and strange. Eventually, this grief will come to us in the accomplished austerity of Michelangelo. Here, however, it remains raw. Like the crucifixion itself, the Pieta is an image of the love which pours forth for the world and which is revealed in the depth of suffering. Where Jesus offers his salvific blood, Mary offers her tears, weeping for her son, for herself, for those who have lost him, and for those who killed him. It's an image by which I am consoled even as I am implicated. Who are we in the Pieta? Are we the mourners, the mourned, or those who caused this situation to happen? There's not a single answer to this question, which is part of its value as an image. Since we can't situate ourselves to it in a permanent way, we have to keep coming back to understand it anew. That would be my invitation to both of you to just speak a little bit about where you're at with all of this sadness. I mean, the conversation we keep having at our house and probably part of it is because we have kids that are, you know, four and seven is just the long term effects of this. Even if tomorrow all of the parents are reunited with their children, there's so many things like I heard one guy talk about how a lot of these kids are from countries. Well, they're all from countries where there's not a great social structure network. So the family is like even more important than it is for American kids. You know, my kids go to public school. They have a violin teacher, right? These kids don't have that. They have their family. And so this is in many ways even more devastating for them. I keep thinking about, you know, we've all heard this just the horrible recording of these children crying. I think the silence has been more disturbing to me. There was a pediatrician who went in and she was in a room full of toddlers. And you guys remember, and Dave is still living this, you know, you go in a room full of toddlers and they're like really loud and they're like interacting and they're playing and they're pushing each other and they're being, you know, tiny sinners. And she went into the room and it was like total silence, except for this one little kid that kept 
crying. And of course, the people who work there can't pick the kids up and comfort them. And so the worker just kept handing the child the same toy. I can't help but think of the farmer in Arkansas who I grew up around, who every few weeks would have a giant van of Japanese Americans pull up and fall to their knees and weep in his field because his field is where an internment camp used to be. And they had been children in those internment camps. And I just think, I mean, for me, it's, there's all the politics of it, but it's, it, it is this, what, what is happening to these children that's, that's lasting. That's, yeah. that's just, just, God, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. So this has been heavy in my mind and uh, something Andrew and I've been talking a lot about at home. And we went to a, a rally here in Waco just to, kind of say immigration policy questions aside we're not okay with 2300 children being separated from their families and it was an incredibly diverse group across political spectra it was progressive it was conservative there were evangelical bible church folks lots of baptists because this is waco conservative breakaway anglicans and episcopalians i mean just everybody there saying this is not okay and i think you know from a mockingbird perspective i think an interesting point here and pr- there's some i know we have listeners uh, hey there listeners who are on the more conservative side and some who are more progressive side we got everybody out there but i think from a mockingbird standpoint one thing we have to talk about here is the use of romans 13 and paul's statement on government and law and and the argument that basically because the law says so we have to do it and i think there's a really big question here of, you know are we are we going to have a secular government or are we going to have a, a religiously based bible oriented government and if we're going to have the bible oriented one we can't just quote romans 13 out of context and ignore jesus's words to say let the little children come to me and as much as you've done to the least of these you've done to me and not to mention the fact that we are a nation of lawbreakers in that from thomas jefferson on down the second we wrote the declaration of independence we were breaking the law and clearly we think that there are times when it's okay to do that um Mm. so and i think you know we've talked about from a theological standpoint here that the law does not bring about that which it demands Mm. and i think you know for jeff sessions to say the law says it (laughs) it's interesting isn't it that nobody was like oh okay well, I guess we just have to do this. No, the outcry continued to grow from Democrats and Republicans. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, this you know zero tolerance policy, which was put in place to deter illegal immigration. And by the way, there's a lot that's not illegal immigration. It's asylum seekers, which is totally mm-hmm. legal. And our laws make a path for that. The deterrent effect did not happen. Yeah, like the work. latest numbers from the Department of Homeland Security show that immigration uh-huh. has actually increased in this time period. So again harsh application of the law didn't work the harsher penalties never work yeah and i mean isn't the the law itself here in, in, that's in the separating kids from their parents i think that dates back to your furniture i mean like isn't that a clinton law that was just was never enforced <laughs> yeah that's right that's and a so great callback like, from the very beginning of the show we have to make sure well, tj doesn't it's, edit it's, that out otherwise it won't make sense <laughs> <laughs> well no so yeah I've, the, I've, the, the I've thing read, it's not the, as simple the, as Jeff Chessons is evil. It's like, this is a longer running thing. Right. Then again, I'm not close enough to the border to understand. I know that I read some comments, you know, the BD McClay actually in her piece mentions, this is like, listen, we're on this lifeboat here and there's simply no more room. And I don't feel like I'm on a lifeboat, but I'm like an affluent white dude in Virginia. And so how do I keep a sort of deep, you know, uh, understanding of Christ as a refugee himself always welcoming the children 
with the sense of low anthropology where I will find it very easy to judge those who are far away and also viewing myself as blameless and them not, or even like the idealization of the other. I find it to be the more I think about it, the reason I was hesitant to even talk about it on the air was because I don't, um, it thrusts me into a lot of questions. The one question I'm clear about is that kids should not be separated from their parents. Like, yeah, I mean, I, honestly, I, I'll probably get some interesting emails from about this. I don't. We can already hear the viewers dropping yeah. out right now. <laughs> you know, when people talk about Jesus as a refugee, as some sort of like a justification for this, I'm like, I, I mean, sure, okay, if we're gonna like put 2018 onto, you know. 2000 right. years ago let's do you know let's do it and certainly like the that you know there's that beautiful cartoon that the gentleman drew of mary and jesus is this latino couple and okay i mean if that gets you there then great you know yeah. but when i see the news and i see kids being separated from their parents and all i can think of is like haven't we done this before I just think God is pissed right now. Like that's all like, I don't, I don't, the refugee stuff and trying to make, trying to put Jesus in that box. That's fine. If, but, but for me, it's like Jesus has such a specific love for children and care of children. I don't want us to lose sight. We can spiritualize these things and we, we can forget that these are real people. You know, when yeah. we want to sort of place theology onto it and we know that God has a specific love for the least, the last, the lost, the lonely, the littlest. And and yeah. so I think that's kind of, that's that's what keeps me up at night is like, mm. God is not pleased right now. You know, like that's yeah, all that, that's yeah. sort of, yeah. There are people, who, I wouldn't say they're okay with this. There are people who, there, maybe there are people who are okay with this, but, but there are people who seem to be willing to accept this as a price that we have to pay to quote unquote, get our house in order uh, from an immigration standpoint. And I think that's what's, hard for me because I think each of those children is so beloved. We talk about grace. I mean, children are those folks who have kind of nothing to bring to the table. They're, 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 um, as human capital goes, not very valuable. Uh, and, um, and I think that's one of the clearest expressions of the gospel is Jesus's love for children. When the disciples try to keep people from bringing kids to Jesus because he's too busy for that, he's an important guy. And it's one of the few places in scripture he gets angry and says, no, no, let him, let him come to me. So I think there's something, Dave, I've heard your dad talk a lot about in other contexts millions of years ago in that galaxy far, far away about politics and how it gets connected to our identity. And when people get really angry, and when there's a lot of heat there, you need to ask, you know, what, why is you, why are you so angry about this? Why, why are you so mad on Twitter about this? And to what extent is this connected to your identity? And I think there's, I think there's just some questions to ask. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, that, those are all the thoughts going on in my head. We'll see what people think about this, but I do come back to as Sarah said, it, it really is about children. It's really hard to square that with grace and with the God who seems yeah. to love first i mean and it has been remarkable actually to see the you know liberals and conservatives agree about something <laughs> i mean that's like yeah you have to go pretty far to get people to agree to something and you know i just i just worry that i'm i'm uh, sometimes i think my low anthropology produces a some like a paralysis about you know, well, how I don't feel like I've heard the other side of the story. And like, I, if I know something, I know it's like, we're going to gravitate to the side that makes us feel better. And then I've got my own kids that I'm taking care of. So I wonder, I've got to preach this weekend about David and Goliath. 
And as Sarah, you were joking with me last week, you said, you know, was it in the lectionary that you're supposed to call out Jeff Sessions or something like that? <laughs> it seems like all your friends thought it was, and it actually is not in there. But yeah. hey, Romans 13 might be in there. I don't know. Um, right. But this week, it's David and Goliath and, and talking about how God works through the little and the lost and that incredible things can happen as we see ultimately in Jesus, that the losing, the defeat may not be the defeat we think it is. I don't know, that hope is not just a thing with feathers, it's the small seed that falls to the ground and dies. We said this before to preachers, and I'm, I'm again, I'm at Sewanee and I met a couple of people who actually, who are preachers, who are priests, who listen to this podcast faithfully. And I think when things like this happen, there's such a huge push. And I'm fascinated by this on social media from other priests to push other priests or preachers, depending on what your denomination is, but other preachers to preach about these issues in a very specific way. There was a big article that went around that like everyone in the world shared that was like, if your preacher doesn't preach about the immigration issue and children being separated from their parents a Sunday, you should leave your church, which is like, okay. Um, <laughs> no pressure, man. Um, you better get it together. Um, I'm in this Facebook group of people from my own denomination and it's a really unique group. It's a very honest group and people are, we're talking about things like this and this guy, I was so grateful for his witness. He said this past Sunday, he preached about this whole thing and went, you know, went into all of this is what we should do and here's how we should fix this. And, you know, maybe Jeff Sessions is evil got thrown in there. I don't know. And then he said, you know, and as I'm walking, people are leaving and they're, they're saying, Oh, what a bold sermon preacher and this kind of stuff. And he said, and then that afternoon I just felt empty because like yeah. I'd gotten up there, stated the obvious in an aggressive way, everything everyone else knew, told them things they could do. And like, I mean, okay, maybe something comes of that. Maybe it doesn't, but like this time that is like uniquely reserved for the gospel, this is how it got used that week. And yeah. I think I would just say to preachers, like everyone has great ideas for what everyone else should be doing right now. And there are some, and I mean that sincerely, you know, there's ways to get money. There's, you know, here's who you should call in your local government, all this stuff. We are in the one position to talk about the importance of calling on God, the importance of prayer. I mean, Dave, your dad is the one that has said before something like, you know, God's the one you should get mad at because he's the only one who can change the situation. Like there is actually a unique thing. I mean, it does call on that whole like thoughts and prayers thing, but specifically prayers, like we need to pray for these children and we don't just need to pray for them now. We need to pray for them, you know, five years from now when they're trying to navigate their lives. I mean, this is, this is like, you know, if we could commit long-term to pray for these kids, I think that is in some ways the best thing we can tell our people because everyone else is telling them what to do. And, you know, and, and apparently all the other priests are telling all the other priests what they're supposed to preach about this Sunday. Yeah, anyway. I mean, we've got the, the message of grace for lawbreakers and grace for those who uphold the law cruelly. And, and it, that's a really right. necessary but difficult yeah. message. And we don't want to become Pharisaical about no. Pharisees. But speaking about preaching, I'm going to give the final word Do it, to Dave. the Reverend Aaron Zimmerman to tell us what it is you're working on behind the scenes for Mockingbird and why we should all be so excited that none of these questions will need to be asked anymore yeah. very shortly. That's right. We're bringing back the same old song podcast, which is Mockingbird's lectionary-based podcast for preachers or people who are interested in preaching. We will be coming to you in Advent, so right at the end of November, which is the beginning of the church year 
coming to you every week with uh, Jacob Smith from Calvary St. George's Church in New York City. What? Uh, that's right. Uh, and uh, we'll be talking. Uh, please don't interrupt me, Sarah. Uh, we will be talking about uh, what the readings are for that week and some of our thoughts and ways you can kind of get into it. If it's for panicked preachers on Saturday night or possibly really, really early Sunday morning to get some hooks maybe into the text and think about where they want to go. But, and if you're not a preacher, but just, uh, you know, like the Bible, maybe you might find something in there too. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. And we try not to be boring. I think if the podcast had a subtitle, it'd be same old song, how not to suck at preaching. Uh, mm. And so uh, I think there's a lot of preaching out there that we could say is not optimal. And if you are in a place where that is the reality, maybe you could find a few nuggets here as well. Yeah. And, and Chris Pratt is the guest star in the next episode. Thank you very That's much right. for, uh, <laughs> to both of you guys, have a great time away or whatever it is you're up to. Sarah, Chattanooga. All right. We'll do Sarah, in, 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 in dedication to you, I just ordered an enormous size poster of the Gospel Road. Uh, Did that you? That you would put, you know, Johnny Cash's Gospel. Yes. With, like, very wonky, strange, but awesome music, sort of post-Jesus Christ Superstar. Good. With Johnny Cash and then a huge crucified Jesus in the back. Yeah. But very Anglo, you know, like a, As Swe it should be. a Swedish Jesus. <laughs> anyway, guys, uh, thank you so much, and we will be back at you in a couple weeks. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, Dave. Thank you for listening. Remember, you can find us on the web at www.mbird.com. And we'd always love to hear from you at info at mbird.com. Audio production for The Mockingcast is provided by the Narrativo Group. And if you like what you've heard, please do drop over to iTunes and leave us a rating and review. Until next time. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Thank mm -hmm. you.